0: Let us give ourselves to the reading of God's most holy word. This is the word of the Lord, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose or propose will Let us read now the New Testament text, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, saying, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, This is the reading of God's most holy word, and our prayer is that God would bless the preaching of it and that He would also help us apply it uh, to our lives today. I think you would agree that the story of the Tower of Babel is a well-known story, even in our culture. But I'm not sure that it is often understood. I wonder how many after reading this story, the story of the Tower of Babel, the building of it, and the dispersion of the peoples uh, to the ends of the earth, I wonder if they do not think to themselves... What was God so upset about that he would respond by confusing the language of the peoples of the earth to scatter them abroad? What was he so upset about? And on the surface, it might seem as if God is against all cultural progress. As if he was upset that man dared to cooperate with one another to build a city. God's response to this activity of man uh, probably does seem harsh to some, as if it were an overreaction on God's part. They're just trying to build a city, God. They're just trying to resist being separated, divided, dispersed. Why are you so bothered by this activity? Why did you come down to do what you did? But a careful reading of this text, especially when it is considered in the broader context of the story of Genesis and the broader context of the whole of Scripture... Uh, will reveal that there is more going on here than just men trying to make progress. God was displeased, not with the city building or tower building per se, but with the spirit of these sinful men who sought to live their lives, to build their city and their tower independent of God and for their own glory. The tower that these men built was not just a tower, but it was a temple. It was a Mesopotamian ziggurat used to promote the worship of false gods. That's what it was. When these men built their city and their tower, their hope was that the gods, that is their gods, the false gods, would descend to them to bless them. Let us build this tower, this temple, this ziggurat to reach the heavens and their hope We know this from their own literature, the Mesopotamian literature, was that the gods themselves would descend upon them to bless them and that they themselves would ascend to become like the gods and make a name for themselves. This construction project was no innocent enterprise. Instead, the building of this city in a plain in the land of Shinar and the construction of this tower temple was an act of rebellion. Against the God of heaven. The story shows that the same desire for independence and autonomy, which drove Adam and Eve to take of the forbidden tree, which drove Cain to build a city and to name it after his son, and for those sons to, of God who were mentioned earlier in the book of Genesis to rule. Uh, corruptly, harshly, and oppressively in the days leading up to the flood, that same spirit that was there in the world prior to the flood is here in this world in the days after the flood. The same is true in the world after the flood. Men are still seeking to build their lives independent and autonomous from God. Uh, Though Noah and his sons were saved from the flood waters in that ark, and though they set their feet down upon a renewed earth and after the flood waters receded, we see most clearly here that they did not find themselves in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Far from it. Man was still fallen and in sin. Man still lived in a fallen and sinful world. What we see in this Babel story is that men were still eager to pursue, not the glory of the God of heaven, but their own glory. They were eager to decide for themselves how they ought to worship. They were eager to decide for themselves how they ought to live. And with this, God was displeased. Tell me this is not applicable to us today, brothers and sisters. I dare you. This is so applicable for us today. We're driven here, after considering this text and after seeking to understand it, to ask the question, is there any of this in me? That I would be the kind of person who would seek to build my life According to my own rules and standards, independent and autonomous from God, giving no attention to His Word, is there any of this in me that I would tend to build my life for my own pleasure, for my own glory, for my own namesake, as opposed to for the glory, pleasure, and namesake of God? I think this brief story is a literary masterpiece. I wish that I could take the time to describe to you all of the word plays contained in this text in the Hebrew language. There are a lot of word plays going on that help us to understand the true meaning of the story. I wish that I could show how complex the structure of this this little text is. Um, It also helps us to understand the main point. I'll, I'll say briefly that this story is broken into seven sections those sections are formed into a, an extended chiasm with verse 5 as the turning point as the emphasized portion of it and not only is this text structured as an extended chiasm you know where Point one corresponds to seven and two to six. I've told you about this before. It's also organized into two tables. And we are meant to compare those two tables, one with another. And verse five, again, is emphasized because it's left out if you put it into this table form. Um, I think all of this is fascinating. But it doesn't preach very well, does it? And so I'll just leave it at that. This is a wonderfully crafted a literary masterpiece here, this story of the Tower of Babel, and we could say so much about that. But let us get more quickly to the heart of the matter. I want to consider this text scene by scene. First, we encounter introductory remarks. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there, we are told. These are introductory remarks. This is the first section of the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, this statement, now the the whole earth had one language and the same words, might strike you as very odd. Given what we have already read in Genesis chapter 10. Are you, are you thinking about this here, brothers and sisters? What did we encounter in Genesis chapter 10? Uh, there in that table of nations, as we have called it, the spread of the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, was described to us. Do you remember that from last Sunday's sermon? And at the end of each section in that table of nations, we read these words, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. Uh, this is how the account of the descendants of Japheth concluded. They spread to the coastlands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The same is true for the description of the descendants of Ham. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And it is also true for the section dealing with Shem. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So, if, if this is what we have learned in Genesis chapter 10 then how can Genesis 11, 1 begin with the words, now the whole earth had one language and the same words? Do you see the problem or the apparent problem? How could this be? The answer is that the Bible often recapitulates. You've heard that word before. you heard a lot of it in our study of the book of Revelation. But here it is again. The Bible often recapitulates. It is not always organized chronologically, but sometimes goes backwards in time, in order to emphasize some other aspect or theme in the historical development. Uh, The table of nations in Genesis 10 chronicles for us the dispersion of the peoples of the earth and even takes us past the Babel incident to the time where each of the clans and nations that descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth had their own language. But as we move forward to Genesis 11 in the text, we find that the text takes us backwards in time. Genesis 10 tells us about the dispersion of the peoples of the earth, but here is the key point to recognize. Genesis 11 tells us why they were dispersed. Genesis 11 tells us why they were dispersed. What was the spirit in the children of man, the sons of man, that led to their dispersion and to the confusion of their languages these two texts genesis 10 and 11 are not difficult to to harmonize to bring together it should be remembered that genesis 10 gave attention to one figure in particular in the line of ham we have a list of names and it's pretty Uh, metric, right? It it just kind of rolls right along. So-and-so begot so-and-so. Actually, that language is not there. But these are the descendants of the sons of of Japheth, so on and so forth. It's pretty standard there. But in Genesis 10.8, we were introduced to this figure named Nimrod. We are told in 10.8 that he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. In other words, he was a very great and powerful king. And we were also told concerning him that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Do you hear that? And here Nimrod is introduced to us rather early in the line of, of Ham. In Genesis 10, the camera angle is very wide. There we are zoomed way out to consider the spread of the nations in general. But in Genesis 11, we are zoomed way in upon the city of Babel, which Nimrod founded, to see the true spirit of that civilization, which led to the curse of confusion of the languages and to the dispersion of those people. The spirit of that civilization was to build, independent from God, in the line and spirit of Cain, Lamech, Ham, and Nimrod. That was the spirit of that civilization. Also, I think it should be remembered that in Genesis 10.25, we were introduced to one man named Peleg. Do you remember his name from the sermon last week? Peleg was born in the line of Shem and in the righteous line of Eber. And through Peleg's line, Abram, who we know as Abraham, would be born. From him, the Hebrew people would come and in Genesis 10.25, we learn that in Peleg's day, the earth was what? It was divided in his day, in his time. Uh, here, we learn that his name means division. In other words, it was during Peleg's lifetime that the Babel event that is here described to us happened. And so Genesis 10 and 11, they do not contradict one another. Instead, they complement one another Genesis 10 describes the dispersion of the nations generally, but Genesis 11 looks up close to show us the details. And so with these words the stage is set for our story. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, that is from the mountains of Ararat where the ark came to rest they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Let us Take a moment to imagine a world like that. Imagine a world where there was no such thing as a language barrier. Imagine that for a moment. All we know are language barriers. It's very difficult, even impossible for us to communicate with other people spread around this globe. Because of that language barrier, people would be able to work together much more efficiently towards a common good. Don't you agree? If There was no language barrier. Or so you would think that people would be able to work together towards a common good. But the rest of the story describes what sinful and fallen man in the line of Ham and Nimrod did with this blessing of a unified language. Instead of using it for good, they used it for for evil. They used it for evil. Having had the scene set for us in verses 1 and 2, let us now consider the first scene in verse 3. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. This is what these people said to themselves, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. These words, they they might just seem so basic and insignificant that we pass right over them quickly, but they need to be considered carefully. As I said before, this is a carefully crafted literary masterpiece. They need to be considered carefully. The phrase, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, is meant to be contrasted with another well-known phrase found earlier in the book of Genesis. Notice that the words of these worldly men are very similar to the words of God as recorded in Genesis 1.26. There we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Do you hear the similarity? If you were to put them side by side, you'd say, Ah, I think we're to make this connection here. Here, sinful men say to one another, Let us make something. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. But God has said, let us make man in our image. God engaged in a building project at the beginning of time, didn't he? He made the heavens and the earth. And he also made man. And what was his purpose for man? What was his stated purpose? And I think this is very significant for our story today. What was his stated purpose for man? It was that man would exercise dominion upon the earth. Do you remember that? He made man in his image in order that man might exercise dominion. Do you hear the language of king and kingdom in that? He was to exercise dominion upon the earth, but how was he to do it? Clearly, under the authority of God. He was to do so for the glory of God, under the authority of God, living in obedience to God's commands. This was Adam's task. Man was created to have dominion on the earth and to labor for the advancement of whose kingdom, brothers and sisters? He was to have dominion and he was to labor for the advancement of God's kingdom. Adam was to expand and keep the garden, temple of God. But the words of the men who built Babel and the words of God when he made man in are similar, though they are similar, so that we might be prompted to compare and contrast them. When we do, when we do compare and contrast them, it becomes apparent that these city builders, they are actually up to no good. They are building a city and a tower not under God and to advance His kingdom. But they are seeking to establish a kingdom all their own. That is the problem here. We have the introductory remarks. We have the first scene. Let us consider... Uh, The second scene, which makes all that I have just said explicitly clear. Verse 4. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Are there some words that stick out to you there? I I hope so. Uh, The words us and ourselves seem very important to me. Come, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. These men were very ambitious, weren't they? They were very ambitious. Ambition, that is the strong desire to achieve something, is not evil. It is in fact a good thing to be ambitious. But there is a distinction between holy ambition and unholy ambition. Ambition, ambition that acts for the glory of something other than the glory of God and for the good of others, is sinful, is it not? It is not the ambition that is a problem, but it is the goal or the target of that ambition. If it is not for the glory of God and the good of others, then that ambition that you possess, as as intense as it might be, is sinful. Often our ambitions are selfish. And this is why James says in 3.13 of his, his little letter... Listen to his words. They pertain. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James is promoting wisdom that is meek. Wisdom which first humbly submits to God and has God's word as its source. Did you hear that there? And then he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, In your hearts, it sounds to me like the tower builders in Babel. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boast and false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But listen to this. Is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I don't know that it's true, but it's almost as if James had this Babel incident in his mind when he wrote these words. At least we can make that connection. Where there is selfish ambition, we see that there is disorder and every vile practice. This is exactly what we see on display in this Babel narrative. These men had a kind of wisdom, didn't they? They had a kind of wisdom, but it was not the wisdom from above. They did not live in submission to God's rule and to His word, but sought to establish their autonomy and their ambition, though great in size, was selfish ambition. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. They, the wisdom and ambition that they had were not good and godly, but earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It is no wonder then that the product was disorder. And every vile practice, for this is what jealousy and selfish ambition produce. Note the word city also in their statement. These men desired to build a city. This was not the city of God, dedicated to the glorification of His name, but the city of man. Their ambition was to do what other city builders in the past had done in the line of Cain. Pay special attention to this. Uh, Their city... The city of Babel would, in the course of time, become the prototypical city of man and the antitype to the city of God called Babylon. We must make that connection early. Babel becomes Babylon in the course of time. And remember that to Babylon, the Israelites would eventually be taken into captivity and then brought out again. And in the scriptures, Babylon stands symbolically for all that opposes God and His people in the earth. And yet God is sovereign even over Babylon. Remember how the city of Babylon functions symbolically in the book of Revelation. I hope you're able to make this connection There, Babylon symbolized the wicked and godless kingdoms of this earth in general. In Revelation 4, 8, we read another angel, a second following, said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Concerning the great prostitute of Revelation 17, we read, And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, John said. And then in Revelation 18, the fall of Babylon, who stands, which stands for all of the wicked kingdoms of the earth, was foretold. Verse 2 And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Verse 10 They will stand far off in fear of her torment. And say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And then lastly in verse 21 of Revelation 18 we read, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. At that time, that is, at the end of time, that which is the book of Revelation is describing here, the kingdoms of this world, these earthly, humanly developed cities, man-centered cities, will be judged and banished from the earth so that the only city that remains is God's city. The only kingdom that remains is God's kingdom. Notice that these men, uh, those who were associated with Ham and Nimrod, not only desired to build a city, but also a tower with its top into the heavens. Uh, This was not just any old tower, but a temple, as I have already said. It was a Mesopotamian ziggurat. Uh, These structures were similar to the pyramids found in Egypt, and also their purpose was similar. Uh, They were not just towers or temples or, or, or pyramids, rather, but they were temples. They were places of worship. They were associated with... Um, their belief in the gods and their desire to commune with them. Instead of being finished off and polished into that pyramid shape which is so familiar to us, these ziggurat structures were built up level by level with a base that was, was wider than the second and third levels and so on. It would be naive again to think that these structures, both the pyramids of Egypt and the ziggurat tower of Babel, were mere and meaningless structures as if the men who made them said, hey, let's build something big and cool. That was not what they were doing. Instead, they were built for religious purposes. They were constructed, being driven by the religious fervor of their makers. These men built this tower to reach to heaven. Their hope was that the gods of heaven would descend upon the mountain that they had built. I hope that you are just picking up on themes. God has a mountain, doesn't He, that He descended upon to reveal Himself to Israel. But these men said, we'll make ourselves a mountain. And will commune with the gods in this way. Their hope was that the gods of heaven would descend upon the mountain they had built, and that by their mountain they themselves would manage to ascend for heaven. To, to heaven, if if it preached better, and if we had more time, I might take some time to read from the Mesopotamian creation story, uh, the epic, uh, the, the um, Enuma Elish, and show you that there's a very similar story in the Mesopotamian literature from ancient times to the to the one that we have here in Genesis chapter 11. It's a completely different emphasis though, of course. It's shown in a positive light. They try to justify their works here, but the scriptures are saying, no, this is the truth concerning this project of theirs. It was an act of idolatry. It was an act of rebellion against the God of heaven. Their Their objective was to make a name for themselves. This means that their goal was to advance and to establish their own name. And I think in the context, their quest must have been to establish their names in the heavenly realm amongst the gods as they believed in them. In essence, they were attempting to do, now pay careful attention here, in essence, they were attempting to do what Adam and Eve thought they were doing when they ate of the forbidden fruit. What did they think they were doing? They thought that they would become like God. That was the promise to them that the evil one made. Uh, They thought that they would become like God. And these early Babylonians built their temple with the hopes that it would function like a stairway to heaven. The gods would descend to them and they would ascend to take their place amongst the gods. Their religion was, in in this sense, no different from all the other man-made religions of the world. They sought to obtain immortality, by their own effort, and by their own building. And here is the distinguishing characteristic of all man-made religions. It is, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us lay a hold of immortality, eternal life, divinity, by our own wisdom, by our own methods, by our own effort. But the scriptures are clear, uh, brothers and sisters, now that man is fallen... Now that the covenant of works has been broken, there is no way for man to ascend to heaven or to have fellowship with God by his own efforts and by his own building. That way to life eternal is firmly closed off. God himself must provide a way now that man has fallen. God himself must build. And here is the distinguishing characteristic of the covenant of grace through which we are saved. In the covenant of works, God says, do this and you will live. But in the covenant of grace, what does God say? The words are these. I will, God says. I will do such and such. I will provide a savior. I will establish my kingdom. I will build my church. I will finish the work that I have begun in you. Christ is the mediator of the covenant of grace, and it is only through him that salvation is possible. And was it required for what, what is required for one to partake of the benefits which Christ has earned? What, what, is the, what is required of us? The answer is faith alone. Faith alone. We cannot earn it. We cannot work our way to life eternal. Faith in Christ alone, because the work has been accomplished by him and on our behalf. Contrast what these early Babylonians said with what God said to Abram when he called him out of that pagan culture to make him into a great nation and to bless the nations through him so that the Christ would come from his loins. Contrast what these early Babylonians said with God's word to Abram. The Babylonians said, Come, let us make a name for ourselves. Do you hear it? Come, let us make a name for ourselves. But in the next chapter... Genesis 12, verse 1. Listen to God's word to Abram. But the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed do you. Do you hear the contrast here? These early Babylonians said, come, let us make a name for ourselves. But but God is the one who has to act. And he did act in human history. He called Abram out of that pagan culture and God said to Abraham, I will make your name great. This here is the promise of the covenant of grace. Uh, Here is the grace principle and not the works principle. No one has ever been saved by that works principle after the fall. Friends, if anything of the kingdom of God is to be built after man's fall into sin and after the breaking of the covenant of works, it must be built by God and according to His revealed design. Here in this story, the building of the Tower of Babel, we find men building not for God and under His rule, but for themselves, and according to their own wisdom. More than this, they are found fighting against the explicit decree of God. They built their city and tower, lest they be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They did not want to be dispersed. But we should remember that God, after He created Adam and Eve, He blessed them, and what did He say to them? He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And after God brought Noah and his sons through the flood and into the world that now is, He again blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But here these early Babylonians, these people of Babel aligned with Cain, Ham, and Nimrod say, Come let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. These people were living in all-out rebellion against the God of heaven as they sought to develop their culture independent of him. The third scene, which is found in the fifth verse, is the pivotal scene in this story. Uh, We know that because of the chiastic structure of the text and to the the, the table structure of the text as well. It is the pivotal scene, and it's a very simple verse. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. If you know anything about the God of the Bible the creator of heaven and earth, you know that he does not need to come down to see anything on earth, but is instead omnipresent and omniscient. That is to say, all present and all knowing. Why then does the text say that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower? Well, first of all, this statement is ironic. Uh, Remember that these Mesopotamians built their tower, their, their, uh, tower temple in hopes gods would come down to them. That was their hope. Instead, the one true God of heaven descended to inspect, but not as they wanted Him to descend. He came to judge. And so there is irony here. The statement also mocks their efforts. From a human perspective, the ziggurat built by these people in the plain of Shinar was an impressive sight to behold. How far they got in the process, we are not told, but I'm sure that the project would have been considered an engineering marvel, especially at the time. I'm sure that those those, uh, people were very impressed with what they had done, however far they got. They probably looked up at the structure and said, look at how powerful and mighty we are. We are greater than anyone else on planet Earth, right? Look at how impressive we are. But from God's perspective, the project was so small And so insignificant that God had to come down to see it. I think this highlights how terribly short these people fell of reaching their goal to build a tower which reached to heaven. Did they make it? No, the God of heaven had to come down as it were to see it. It really is ridiculous, uh, brothers and sisters. If it were not so serious, it would be comical to consider how much we make of ourselves We think that we are so big and powerful, don't we? Turn on the television and you'll see evidence of it, right? Look at our politicians. Look at our athletes. Look at our entertainers. Look at how big of a deal they make of themselves and sadly how big of a deal we make of them. Look at the way that we marvel over our country. Look at the way we marvel over our cities. Look at the way we marvel over our government and our military power and might. God would have to come down to even observe it. It's so small and insignificant before Him. Look at how highly we think even of ourselves individually, as if we are gods. And yet we are not the God of heaven, far from it. Listen to Isaiah 40, 21 through 23. Do you not know Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like what? They are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. We are like ants before him. We are like grasshoppers before Him. It does not mean that we are without value or worth. But what it means is that we are very small. And if we have value or worth, it is in Christ Jesus and it is found in our God. Let us never forget this individually, brothers and sisters. And we would do well to never forget it as a congregation and as a community and as a nation. God is highly exalted. He is mighty. He is powerful. He is glorious. And we are nothing but His creatures. These sons of Ham and Nimrod were so proud of themselves, they thought they could reach up to heaven with their tower they built. But God is so highly exalted above us and so small are we that He had to come down, as it were, to see their little achievement. Let us move on to scene 4, which is found in verse 6. There we read, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them." Um, This is a problem, what they were doing. Not because God is opposed to progress, all progress. But because He, in His mercy, is opposed to progress that is godless. He is opposed to progress that is godless. He is opposed to godless progress, for it is neither to His glory, and it is also neither for our good, ultimately. Ultimately. It doesn't matter how impressive the progress is. If it is not to the glory of God, then it is also not for our good. Scene 5 is found in verse 7 where we read these words. These are the words of God. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. I believe that God is here speaking to Himself again, just as He was when He decided to create man in His image. Let us, that language, that plural language, I believe points to the triune God, the plurality that exists within His, in his being. I think the fact that this is the proper interpretation is revealed in Genesis eleven eight, 8, the very next verse, that says that the Lord dispersed them from over the earth. He does not say the Lord and the angels or the Lord and someone else. It's the Lord who did it, and He speaks to Himself in the plural. Let us... Go down and there confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. Uh, to confuse their language means that God caused the peoples who were then unified and speaking one language to speak many languages and they were therefore divided. Uh, clearly, this was an act of judgment. Because the people used their unity for evil, God cursed them with disunity. No longer would they be able to communicate to build their city and temple and to bring that to completion. They were dispersed. But notice this. We might also view this same act, this act of judgment, also as an act of mercy. By confusing their languages and by dividing them, God restrained the peoples of the earth from running headlong into this sin. By pouring out this judgment, evil was restrained. These men and women were running full full speed towards the establishment of the kingdom of Satan and of the Antichrist. But God showed mercy when He disrupted their plans. He said, not yet. That day will probably come. Christ will return and will judge fully and finally. But here we see evil restrained. Aren't you grateful that our God is merciful in this way to restrain evil, even through His pouring out of judgment? God will do this from time to time in the world, and even in our own lives, brothers and sisters. Sometimes He will disrupt us very badly. Sometimes He will judge us, or better yet, as Christians, He will discipline us. And it is indeed discipline. It is indeed provoked by the displeasure of God concerning our sin. But even that, if we are in Christ, is for our good. Is it not to further refine us, to to purge us from that sin that remains and to draw us to a closer walk with Him. God is merciful. Even as in His pouring out of judgment we see His mercy displayed. In verses 8 and 9 we find the last section, the seventh section of the story and they are concluding remarks. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off, they quit, building the city Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Notice that Genesis 11 doesn't take us any further than Genesis 10 did historically. But it does take us further as it pertains to our understanding of the spirit of this world and of of God's activities within it. That is where we are taken further in Genesis 11. Not chronologically, but in our understanding of the spirit of this world. There are two kingdoms present in this world. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. God is Lord and King over both kingdoms. He is Lord and King over the kingdom of God. For that kingdom is made up of those who desire to live in obedience to Him and for His glory. But He is also Lord and King over the city of man. For God is ultimately sovereign Over all things, even those who oppose and resist his rule. They are not outside of his sovereign control. I want to make just a few points briefly of application as we close. First of all, I think the story of the Tower of Babel should encourage us to be very careful with how we build in this life. The story of the Tower of Babel should make us very careful with how we build. In this life, I think we need to be careful with how we build our own personal lives. It must be according in an obedience to the word of God. Consider your life like this, each moment and each day, you're laying another brick, are you not? Are you building to the glory of God? Are you building for his pleasure? Are you building moment by moment and day by day according to his word, seeking to live in obedience to him? You are building your life even now. Let us take care how we build in this life. It must be according to the Word of God. Jesus Himself said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone comes to me and hears my words and does them. I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, that is, the one who hears and does not obey the word of God, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great." Luke six forty six through 49 Let us take care how we build our lives. It must be according to an obedience to the Word of God. Let us also take care with how we build Christ's church. We must build according to God's Word and for His glory and not our own. Uh, This, I think, is what the Apostle was speaking to when he wrote those words which we have already read at the beginning of this sermon to the church in Corinth. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is now building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Here Paul is not directly speaking to our lives personally, but he's speaking to the building up of Christ's church. And he's saying as an apostle, as a missionary, I laid the foundation there in Corinth. And then I went along to do more work, foundation laying. Someone else is now building upon that foundation. They are the elders of that church. They are the ministers of the gospel in that place. It involves the entire church, in fact. And he says, be careful how you build. Be careful how you build. Not in a worldly way, with worldly philosophies and with worldly wisdom. Because it's going to be tested in the end. Build according to God's word. Secondly, let us be careful how we pursue eternal life, not by works, but by grace, not by our own efforts, but through faith in what God has built. Romans 9, 30 through 33 says this, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. This is Paul, the Jew, saying, Look what has happened here all of a sudden salvation has come to the Gentiles. They didn't pursue it before, prior to the coming of Christ. But look, they have attained it. That is, they have attained a righteousness that is by faith. But ironically, these are my words, not Paul's, Israel, who pursued that law under the Old Covenant that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Why have they not succeeded? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But As if it were based on works. Here is the trouble. These who are Jews according to the flesh are pursuing God. They're pursuing eternal life. But they have made this fundamental and critical error. They thought it was based on works. They thought it was based upon their own obedience. They did not pursue it. That is righteousness before God. By faith. But by their own works. And here is what Paul says. They have stumbled over the Stumbling stone. Here is the stone that everyone seems to trip up on. As if it were written, as it it is written, he goes on to say, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, that is in Christ, will not be put to shame. Let us be careful how we pursue life eternal, not by our own works, not by our own building, but through faith in the Christ who has accomplished the work for us and on our behalf. Thirdly and lastly, let us be faithful to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ locally and to the ends of the earth. Let me make a last connection for you. Um, when the Spirit of God was poured out upon the disciples of Christ on the day of Pentecost, what did they do? What were they enabled to do? They spoke in tongues, not some heavenly angelic language, but the languages of the peoples of the earth. That that event has to be connected with Babel. Why were they enabled to speak in tongues, that is, in known languages? Because now the gospel, which was largely confined to the line of Shem and to the line of Abram and to Moses, that gospel, the good news concerning the Christ, that was largely confined to them under the old covenant, was now to go forth to the nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The Spirit of God was poured out upon them and they spoke in tongues so that this gospel might be heard by the nations of the earth. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, the sound of the rushing wind there in that Pentecost event. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? You know, they, they, they speak Hebrew, the language of Eber. That's the language that they speak. And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. These are the descendants of Japheth, aren't they? These are the descendants of Ham even. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The confusion that was brought about at Babel, that judgment, that even act of mercy, Christ, through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, is is concerned that we break down those language barriers even now, even with his supernatural strength, to proclaim the gospel locally and to the ends of the earth. Let us bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for this story. It is rich indeed. Help us, Lord, to, to live as a people distinct in this world. Father, help us to be courageous also as we live in this world. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are different. We are living for a a world yet to come. This is not our home, we say, and we say it because we believe it. God, help us to live courageously in this world, trusting in you. Lord, may we not fear, but may we have courage. May we be at peace, knowing that you are God, our Lord over all. Help us, Lord, we pray, so that we might give honor to your name. It's in the name of Christ we say these things, and all of God's people say.